Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. GreatNorthernElectric.com, serving our Bainbridge and Kitsap neighbors with solutions for anything electrical in your home. 206-842-3620. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Crack in Podcastville today, Alva Noe. Infinite Baseball is the topic. It's Saturday, July 13th at the Forum. This was taped, courtesy of Seattle Town Hall. I hope you enjoy it. I'd like to begin by reciting a memory poem called Pitcher, and it's by Robert Francis. I don't actually know when it was written, but I think it must have been 60s, maybe even the 50s. Pitcher. His art is eccentricity. His aim, how not to hit the mark he seems to aim at. His passion, how to avoid the obvious. His technique, how to vary the avoidance. The others throw to be comprehended. He throws to be a moment misunderstood. Yet not too much, not errant, errant, wild, but every seeming aberration willed. Not to, yet still, still to communicate, making the batter understand too late. gets at themes that are at the heart of what I'm fascinated about in baseball and that I discuss in the book. Um, I, first of all, let me thank you for being here this evening. I thought on such a beautiful night, a weekend, summer, I don't think I've ever been. I brought a raincoat and umbrella. I, 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 I don't think I've ever been on such a lovely evening. So that you're sharing it with me is, uh, 
thank you so much. And, um, and I might add, it's a difficult time in your lives to be thinking about baseball at all. <laughs> I mean, I, and, I, and I feel your pain. I'm a Mets fan. <laughs> it's, it's also hard to be a Mets fan. It's, it's depressing. And um, like many things in contemporary life, it can be pretty depressing at the moment. But, um, and as um, Ware said, this is actually my third time here. Um, the first time when I was here, I spoke about consciousness in the brain and the state of neuroscience and what philosophy has to teach us about what it is to be a human being. The second time I was here, I talked about the nature of art and why it's important to us and what it reveals about ourselves. And this time I'm here to talk about baseball. So I, I remember, you know, Bart Giamatti used the presidency of Yale University as a stepping stone to become commissioner of baseball. And so there's this question about why, why would a philosopher, why would somebody really whose main interests are philosophical sources to fundamental questions about the human, write a book about baseball, and why, why would that be important? And in a way, I wrote this book to try to understand and answer that question because I do value baseball so much. It matters to me the way I think it matters to at least some of you, probably all of you, um, anybody who's who's kind of been touched by the rhythms and energies of baseball and who has been daunted by its extraordinary difficulty. It is a hard game as a player, as a fan. The game, the game exceeds us. Um, so anybody who appreciates that must appreciate that there is something here. And then when you start to think about it, I, I don't know how many of you come at this event or this evening or this problem with an interesting philosophy. But the thing that's interesting about philosophy is it always begins with the mundane, with the familiar, with everyday experience. And it asks questions that, um, it asks questions that are normally not so much answers, take, the answers are taken for granted. In fact, I'm reminded, uh, James Baldwin, the great writer, once said about art, that the aim of art is to uncover the questions that have been included by the answers. And in a way, that's what philosophy does, too. Philosophy tries to get the questions which we don't ever notice, because we think, because the answers take up all the space. So, um, so why not philosophy? Why not begin with this thing we love and that, and that we care about? Why do we care about philosophy? Excuse me, why do you, that's actually, it's a Freudian slip. For me, these things, what I meant to say was, why do we care about baseball? But I might just as well have said, why, why in the world have I devoted my life to philosophy? Um, you know, many people have, have fathers that turn them on to the game. I got turned on to the game despite my father. So, so in a way, this is an answer to him. Why do I care about philosophy? Um, what makes it so special? And, um, my talk this evening is, I'm going to read you some bits from the book, and then I'm going to speak, and then read you some, some bits from the book, and just try to get some of the themes of the book, including some of the fairly, some controversial claims, out on the table. Um, and then I hope we can have a full discussion of them. Um, but so let me begin, I begin the book really thinking about this question, what makes philosophy so special? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'm just not going to correct myself anymore. <laughs> we get it. You get it. It's funny how the mind works. Plato said that the gods love what is good. Things are not good because the gods love them. It's the other way around when it comes to baseball. It's just a game, but we make it good through our love. We don't play baseball and watch it and write about it and think about it because it's so darn special. It's special. It is special because we care so much about it, because we play baseball and sing its praises and write about it and endeavor to revise it and make it better. Stop and watch the kids playing baseball at the local field. Take a good look. Now ask yourself, what are they doing? You see them pitch, hit, run, throw, catch. You see them make plays. Man on first, one out, hard grounder to, to short. No outs. Runners on first and third, ball popped up to the pitcher. But you also see them talk. There is a lot of talking. What are they talking about? They're telling each other what to do. They're explaining what they did wrong. They are jabbering to distract, but also to motivate. They're thinking about what the next pitch should be, or what it's likely to be. They're directing each other, signaling back and forth, attempting in real time to get a handle in the situation. They talk as they practice and play, and their talk concerns the stuff, all that matters of their activity. They listen. They try to focus. They also sit, stretch, swing bats, study playbooks, put on masks and chest protectors, adjust cups, they eat, drink, spit, laugh, curse, they chant, and they call out, good eye, good eye, or you got this, or two strikes now, gotta protect, gotta protect. They cast glances at their parents. They work hard to manage their emotions. And the boys and girls on the field are not alone in this freewheeling conversation and engagement with the play. The coaches are in the thick of it, as are the owners, if there are any. And then there are the spectators. They are no less invested in the actions that do not so much unfold before them as lure them in and make them complicit. They don't just watch, they cheer, they command and advise, they participate in the practice of trying, in effect, to articulate or to grasp, or of trying to grasp and keep track of this game. They scatter when a ball is hit into foul territory to make room so the fielders can play the ball. Where does the game stop and all this chatter and observation and debate begin? If you look and pay attention, you'll have to admit the limits of the game are not drawn in any straightforward sense around the field of play. Baseball is a practice that is bigger than that. There is so much writing about baseball. Not just good writing, but good writing by intellectuals. No other American sport, with the possible exception of boxing, as others have noticed, has come close to attracting the attention, not only of fans and specialists, but also of intellectuals who feel called on not just to celebrate the game, but also to understand it and to find the words to say why we love it so. Stephen Jay Gould, the great paleontologist and scholar of evolutionary history, 
took up this question in the introduction to his own collective writings on baseball. Yes, he wrote a collection of writings on baseball. Why? Why so much intellectual focus on baseball? Is the game different from other games? Is it just that hard or that complex or mathematical? Or might it be, as Gould also considered, that it's because baseball so perfectly and so uniquely imitates life, its circular, seasonal rhythms, its meanings, trying to be safe, trying to get home, that baseball, alone among games and sports, is a fitting stand-in for reflection on the more lofty theme of life itself. Gould took a tentative stab at an answer, a negative answer. Baseball is the national pastime, he assumed. That is, it's the dominant game in the gaming ecosystem. If there's more intellectual writing about baseball, he reasoned, then this is because there happen to be more baseball fans, and not because a higher percentage of baseball fans, as compared to fans of other sports, are intellectual, or because baseball, on the intrinsic merits, demands more of the intellect. Gould was onto something. He nailed the blunt contingency of our love of the game. We grow up to love the foods. We grow up eating. And we find it easiest to give full expression to our thoughts and feelings in the language we grow up speaking. And so with baseball and other sports, we love and experience most fully the virtues of the games we grow up playing. And those of us who are intellectuals express their love in the form of serious writing. To suppose that there's something about the game itself that makes it especially worthy of thought and attention smacks at least a little bit of the sort of chauvinism that might lead someone to think that his homely cuisine or his mother tongue is somehow truly superior. In this book, though, I suggest a more radical explanation of baseball's link to writing. Baseball, from the very first, is a thinking game, a game that demands of its players that they seek in their role as players to fathom and articulate the game. If I'm right, then thoughtful writing on baseball of the sort that Gould produced and that I'm trying to produce, as I wrote this is baseball. Baseball includes all that. It comprehends the way we use baseball to understand both what is and what is not baseball. This idea that baseball is a kind of reflective activity is a philosophical one. Baseball, in this sense, is a philosophical game. Now, when I say that baseball is a thinking game or a philosophical game, I don't mean that its performance is primarily intellectual or that baseball players are philosophers. The philosopher, yeah, you laugh. Um, when, I, when I listen to the things these, these, like my son's coaches say, um, but the philosopher Gerald Levinson once remarked in response to hearing me talk about this, that while growing up in Brooklyn, he knew some pretty strong baseball players, but he wouldn't have been inclined to say that their excellence corresponded to wit. <laughs> he offered this as an objection to the idea that baseball is reflected in the way I'm suggesting. So let me clarify. It is not my claim that baseball is an intellectual undertaking, just like philosophy, that would be silly. That's no more true than the claim that to know a language, you need to be a linguist, or that to be a cop, you've got to be a lawyer. If you've spent time around the game, you just know that isn't true. Sure, there are 
many deep-thinking, smart baseball players, but the clubhouse is not a place where you can expect to hear a lot of intellectually elevated talk. And yet we need to tread carefully here. If you speak a language, whatever languages you speak, then you've probably, indeed I would say necessarily, had occasion to think about language use. For example, you've probably wondered whether you're using a word correctly, or noticed or been puzzled by the word usage of another person. Maybe you've explained a word's meaning to a kid or felt critical of someone because it was hard to follow, that it's hard to understand. It would be crazy to say that to be a speaker, you need to be a scholar of language, but I think it is a deep and often overlooked fact about language that to know a language, you need to be sensitive to the kinds of problems that language use itself presents. And the same is true of baseball. There's no playing it without participating thoughtfully in the problems it raises. Nothing brings us, nothing brings this out more than the preoccupation inside baseball with keeping score. Scorekeeping in baseball isn't just a matter of figuring out what happened in a graphical practice of applying or devising notations for the purpose of writing it all down. We aim, when keeping score, to figure out how to score the play. For example, we scored the runners out of the play 7-6-2, that is the left fielder who laid the ball to the cutoff shortstop, he threw to the catcher who made the tag at the plate. Scoring requires knowledge, it requires judgment, it requires making decisions about, for example, whether a bunt up the third baseline is a failed attempt to get on base, or whether it is a sacrifice. If we say the latter, then we don't even count the batter's actions at the plate as an at-bat. We appreciate that he sacrificed his at-bat, his chance to get a hit in order to advance the runner. Or about whether the second baseman committed an error in failing to play the ground ball, or whether it was a hit, pure and simple. When we say it was a hit, we mean that we can't blame the fielder for having missed it. And there are questions such as whether runs scored on the pitcher should count as earned runs, or whether they're the result of fielding errors beyond the pitcher's control. Keeping score, then, is at once an intimate look not just at what um, happened, but also at how what happened is really a matter of sourcing praise and blame and interpreting the significance of what's going on. Baseball reality is fixed less by what happens than by the question who's responsible for what happens. And it is forensic matters, I'm gonna come back to that term in a little bit, it is forensic matters such as these that are the main preoccupation baseball scorekeeping, and crucially scorekeeping, isn't something that takes place outside the game, a mere matter of recording. Like, for example, the activity of filming a game for broadcast. It belongs to the game's play. It's a thoughtful activity that is essential to the game, to its unfolding dynamics and rationale. And the scorekeeper's perspective, if not the actual task of writing it all down, is the perspective taken up it's the perspective that really needs to be taken out by the players themselves. To play the game is to be interested in the score and to be concerned with the basic challenges posed by the task of accurate scorekeeping. Now, so I'm now beginning in those passages to make an argument for the view that baseball 
isn't just a thing we play that we can also think about, but that thinking about it in a certain kind of conceptually difficult way, and in a way that is interpretive, and that isn't algorithmic, it involves judgment calls, is actually part of the play itself. And I introduced this term, forensic. I'd like to read you a very short passage in which I say more about that. Actually, I can say right away before I go that um, most of us know the term forensic from cops and robbers shows. Forensic science is the science of whodunit. And one of the arguments I make in this, uh, in this book that baseball is a forensic sport. By the way, before I do read this, um, how, is the, how are the acoustics back there? Can everybody hear me okay? Even in the back row? Yeah? Good. People like to say that baseball is a game of statistics. I'm going to come back to that. But really, it is a game of law. It is a forensic sport. Actually, before I read this book, let me, let me just say something about the organization of the book. The book consists of 32 very short essays, each of which can be read quite briefly, and each of which is self-contained. Um, somebody who reviewed this book in the Wall Street Journal said of the book, I'm not sure whether this is praise or criticism, <laughs> And it doesn't take much longer to read the whole book than it does to watch a contemporary game of baseball from start to finish. Um, but, and I wrote, I wrote a lot of these essays. They started out in life, I was, I was blogging for National Public Radio, a science and culture blog. And I insisted, as a condition of doing this work for them, that I get to discuss baseball. And in the course of, in the course of writing these pieces on baseball, I realized that there was a unifying theme. So I've then written a, a rather long, introductory essay that kind of tries to articulate this, this themes that run through the book. So what I'm now reading from is one of the short little essays. What I was just reading from was the introductory essay. When I say baseball is a forensic sport, what I mean is this. In baseball, we are interested less in what happens than in who is liable or responsible for what happens. We are interested in apportioning praise and blame. To put it better, in baseball, as in the law, the way you determine what happened is by making a judgment about who is responsible for what happened. Whether an act of violent killing is murder, give the gruesome example, depends on the halo of circumstances surrounding the act. We can know the local facts, A shot and killed B, say, and still not know whether A murdered B. Was it an accident? Was it self-defense? Was it an act of passion or mercy killing or an act of war? What was done depends on more than just what happened. And so with baseball. Batter hits ball and makes it safely to first base. What we want to know is, did he get a hit? And this is really the question. Did he earn the base? Or did he get it as a result of an error or a fielder's choice, for example? Do we praise him for his achievement and so credit him with the achievement? Or do we blame the fielder, the fielder for what happened? 
and so deprive the batter of having gotten a hit at all. What happens in baseball is constituted by matters forensic, matters of praise and blame. So consider, these, I use these same examples throughout, runs are either earned or unearned. That ball that got away from the catcher and allowed a runner to advance a base, it's either a wild pitch, it's the pitcher's fault, or it's the past ball, which is the catcher's mistake. Did that runner steal the base or did he take it thanks to defensive indifference? Some pitches are strikes and others are balls. That is, some pitches are, pitcher, are pitches the batter ought to be able to hit. He's to blame if he fails to do so. And some are just lousy throws, which the pitcher is liable. Generally, we blame a batter if he doesn't get a hit, but not always. In cases where the pitcher fails to give him a good pitch and he's awarded a free base, or where he flies out to score a runner, we treat the batter as if he did not even have an at-bat. Nothing brings out this forensic character of baseball so much as the practice in baseball of keeping score And what I now want to share with you is another section where I go a little bit more deeply into this, this problem of keeping score and this distinct uh, challenge which keeping score offers. I said before that I think that there's a way in which every player has to be sensitive to the scorekeeper's perspective, that the perspective of the scorekeeper lives inside the game. It's not just external to the game. It's not, it's not just noise, it's not just talk. Score. 
Too much to write down. I have live ESPN Gamecast. It keeps me updated. This brings us to the heart of the matter. The guy got it all wrong. Brad did score keeping his hard work, but we don't keep score to keep track or to keep updated. Consider first that keeping score is not just a matter of recording the game. It is rather a way of thinking about the game. The scorekeeper asks, what is happening? Did the runner reach on the fielder's choice or did he get a hit? Is that a sacrifice? Was the batter bunting for a hit? In order to keep score, you need to make these kinds of evaluations and decisions. And in order to make these kinds of calls, we need to be closely engaged with the game. We need to pay attention. We need to understand what is going on. You need to have skill. You need to care. Notice you can't write everything down. Do you score every play, even the foul balls? Do you note down where the fielders are positioned at each moment in the game? Do you keep track of the amount of time between pitches? You can't write everything down, but nor do you need to. Writing the game, keeping score, isn't about reproducing the game or even recording it. It's about understanding the game, thinking about it, keeping score. What you do decide to keep track of will depend on what you're interested in. So if you're the pitcher's mom, you probably will score every pitch very exactly. Or if you're the pitching coach. Or maybe the next pitcher is studying the team. But there's a second point that deserves our attention. The scorekeeper doesn't stand apart from the game, merely describing it. The game consists of what the players are doing. But it's the scorekeeper who decides literally what the players are doing. For example, the scorekeeper asks, should the third baseman have fielded that grounder? If the answer is yes, then it follows that he, in fact, just committed an error. For the rest of us, this can have the consequence that the pitcher's no-hitter is intact. <clears throat> The activity of keeping scores in this way internal to the game itself. Now, in practice, we treat one person's scorecard, that of the official scorekeeper, as canonical. So in a sense, when the rest of us keep score, we're just taking notes. The official scorekeeper, in contrast, is doing something very different. He or she is shaping events in real time as they occur. The official scorekeeper is doing something different. The official scorekeeper isn't just keeping score, isn't just keeping track. If you'll permit the wordplay, the official scorekeeper is composing a score. Yes, but at the same time, let's note that the official scorekeeper's authority is purely conventional. He or she has no special powers and no privileged access to the, to the events on the field. And surely we can allow that it is possible for him or her to be mistaken. This means that we can't let ourselves off the hook. There's no official telling of the French Revolution or the Iraq War. How could there be? Each of us has the right, and in some sense even the obligation, to make sense of the events in our lives as we know them. And so I think with baseball. Neither the folks at ESPN, nor the official scorer, nor the announcers on TV, have the authority to decide history for you and me. In baseball, as in life, each of us has to keep his or her own scorecard, if we want to know what's going on, that is. Which brings us to the final crucial point. Keeping score in baseball or in life 
is a knowledge-making activity. It is, we might almost say, a form of research. And as a philosophy professor, that's a good thing. We can get by just fine reading along the ESPN gamecast or taking the evening newscast at face value. For most of us, most of the time, that's the best we can manage. But there is another option. We can keep score. That is, we can write the events that matter to us. We can make knowledge. We can make history. How we keep score, using an app, writing it out by hand, or even just a conversation is irrelevant, but that we keep score. Or that at the very least we recognize that the score needs keeping, that we can't, however much we might like, advocate our authority to make sense of what is going on, is really very important. It would be, I think, a dark consequence of life in the digital age of speaking to the kids in the audience. If we forgot that keeping score is more than keeping track and that each of us has the power to keep score. Now, the game is, the book is called Infinite Baseball. And I had a lengthy discussion about why, why I call it Infinite Baseball. But because I've been reading so much just now, I, I won't read it to you. Um, the thought that I have here is that what I, what I mean by saying that baseball is infinite is that, as I've already indicated, that the activity of playing the game includes, as part of itself, the activity of reflecting on the game. Baseball doesn't reduce just to the different skillful activities that we engage in when we play the game. I mean, if you're a shortstop, you get caught up in the flow and you don't want to be thinking too much about what you're doing. You want to be making plays and the snap plays and you've got to be trained to do it and you don't, you, you don't want to be reflecting on how to do what you're doing while you're doing it. That would be a problem. But baseball isn't just making plays like a shortstop. Baseball is this activity which has this kind of folding in pro property. Now, baseball is not alone like this. I actually think I mentioned the law before. I actually think a lot of life is like this. When we live, we're also forced, like philosophers, whether we like it or not, to reflect on what we're doing. Our life can be a problem for ourselves. And I think this is the structure which baseball <coughs> illustrates very vividly. And it comes out, I think, in this magnificent process that I've been discussing of keeping score and writing baseball down. Um, it also brings out a way in which I think, um, I, I was, you know, these days there's all this talk about artificial intelligence and artificial intelligence, you know, winning chess and winning go and even winning multiplayer video games. Um, I think one reason why computers are not going to be baseball players is that to play baseball isn't just to do what the shortstop does, or do what the hitter does, or do what the pitchers do. It is, I think, to be concerned in a special kind of way with this thing we do called baseball, which, in other words, is to, is to have the reflective preoccupations as well. So that's the, the sort of the infinite game idea. Um, I should say um, that this, this idea of, of, of infinite games is one I'm borrowing from um, a thinker named Carlos, who developed it in a different context. I'm applying it here now. Baseball. When I was in uh, 
graduate school, I was very much, oops, very much concerned with the theory of mind and the dialogue that exists between philosophers and scientists when trying to think about how to understand what perception is or what consciousness is. And I was very focused on the problem of vision. And I had a conversation with a man one day, actually my father, um, and he said, what is vision science? What is it you're doing when you study vision? And I said, well, the problem about vision is this. We're given two tiny, upside down, distorted, jittery images in the eyes. And we experience a unified, meaningful, expansive, three-dimensional world how do we see so much on the basis of so little? And my father, who's much cleverer than I thought he was, furrowed his brow and hissed through his teeth and barked at me. That's not the interesting question. The interesting question is why people see so little when there's so much to see. Not why do we see so much, but why do we see so little? There's so much going on. And I think that thought is an apt thought to think about when we're thinking about baseball. Baseball is hard to see. It's hard to look at. If you bring a friend to a game who's not already inside baseball, it can be very difficult to discern anything going on at all. It just looks like a lot of people scratching themselves with occasional bursts of hysteria. But, and then they get injured. <laughs> they start rooting and then they get injured. Um, you need, to, you need to know so much, you need to learn so much to discern all that is so meaningful in the game. And so, so baseball is a really interesting object lesson in this idea that we don't just get our perceptual awareness of the worlds around us for free. We really need to earn it through, through cultivating ourselves, through educating ourselves. To love baseball, you need to be educated about baseball. And, and, and baseball then is an opportunity to be educated. Um, this is important. This is the thing I discuss at a number of different points in the book. This is important when we think about televised baseball versus actually watching baseball or, or even playing baseball. Um, televised baseball solves a lot of the problems about what you're supposed to be looking at. It, it aims the camera in the right place. I mean, even if you don't listen to, to the commentary, which of course most of us do, we enjoy the commentary. Actually, I'm just going to interrupt myself to share a little story. I hope this doesn't, I guess it's going to go out. But, um, do you guys know who Gary Cohen is? He's the Mets announcer. He's a very good announcer. Everybody loves their team's announcer. But I've always loved Gary Cohen. He's the Mets announcer. And he's not that much older than me. He's maybe five, seven, maybe ten years older than me. And he went to Columbia College. I went to Columbia College. And a few years ago, the, the alumni magazine was interviewing me because I published a book, and they were talking to us, you know, they wanted to hear about the success of an alumni, alumnus. And uh, I mentioned in the interview, I said, Gary Cohen, if you're listening, I want to write a book about baseball. Please get in touch. He <laughs> never got in touch. <laughs> um, and then the other day, you know, it's now, I really shouldn't be talking about this in this company, but it's now the 50th anniversary of the 1969 Mets World Championship season. And um, a lot of books have just come out to celebrate what the Mets did in that, in that amazing year. Um, 
And, and I was reading one of them, a very, very dope book by Wayne Coffey. And um, in it, it mentions some stuff about Gary Cohen's life. And it turns out that not only did he go to college with me, he went to my high school, too. <laughs> um, so I said, this man has to respond to my family. <laughs> we went to college together, a few years apart. We went to high school together, a few years apart. We know people in common. Now I really hope he's not listening. Um, so I, I wrote the high school and I said, look, um, is there any way you can give me contact information for Gary Cohen? And I said, I don't know him, but I'd like to talk to him about a book. <laughs> um, they wrote back half an hour and said, yeah, we got in touch with him and he's happy to be in touch with you. So I'm just sharing that. So I now have a correspondence starting with, uh, with uh, a baseball idol. And so the Mets, the Mets will actually come to San Francisco next weekend. And he'll be there, so I'm hoping that maybe I'll get to, to find him here. But, but um, uh, so one really interesting thing about, about, um, about baseball is how hard, how hard it is to see it. And in a way, the camera, by framing it, tells you what you're supposed to be paying attention to. But of course, we all know there's so much that the camera leaves out. And the camera doesn't show you what the fielders are doing as the batter comes to the plate. The batter doesn't, if the camera doesn't show you the way the umpires are shifting positions so that they can effectively make the calls. There's so much more that is available to you to see if you're there. But of course, if you're there, there's nobody telling you what to look at. There's nobody telling you how to see it. So seeing a baseball game and following it and understanding it is really a, it's a, it's a magisterially difficult thing to do. Um, now this is relevant to a controversy which is, I wouldn't say it's raging, raging among people who love baseball, but it's raging among people who are trying to make money out of baseball. And this is the question that's the hotly debated topic of the problem of pace of play. Yeah. <laughs> Let me read something I've written to you. The title of this very short, I think you'll like this one. This is called, Do We Need to Speed Up Baseball? Major League Baseball is wrestling with the question of how to shorten the length of baseball games. It's eager to find ways to speed things up. The New York Times, not long ago, invited staff writers and readers, some of you might have seen this, to offer suggestions and was inundated with ideas ranging from the reasonable, such as stricter enforcement of timeouts, to the unrealistic, locking off innings of play, making it two strikes and you're out, or letting teams change the batting order later in the game. The history of baseball is a history of rule changes. As we know, the mound was lowered after 1968 as a response to two-dominant pitching. The foul strike rule, making some foul balls count as strikes, was introduced in the 20th century to counter the opposite problem, the failure of pitchers to contain hitting. These were changes introduced to improve the game and level the playing field in the face of shifting styles of play and shifting technologies, new balls, for example. They represent, I think, a real evolution of the game. They also inevitably introduce an element of incommensurability when it comes to comparing on-field accomplishments across different eras. The extraordinary pitching accomplishments of Bob Gibson, Sandy Koufax, and others 
were made possible, at least in part, by conditions of play that no longer obtain. Or consider the fact that prior to 1920, the most homers hit in the season was 29 by Babe Ruth. After 1920, offensive statistics boomed, in large part because of changes in the way balls were handled during play, inaugurating the so-called live ball era. And something like that is probably going on right now. The rule changes now contemplated are of an entirely different kind. They aren't designed to improve the game, but rather to improve the product. I can't second guess Major League Baseball's analysis of marketing realities and its own economic interests. I'll refer to their expertise when it comes to knowing how to maximize revenue. If the people want a faster game, well then give them what they want. But I think they're making a big mistake nonetheless. What makes baseball boring, and I agree that lots of people think baseball is boring, is the same thing that can make classical music boring, or physics boring, or philosophy boring. It's difficult. It takes knowledge and focus to understand what's happening on the baseball field. Every juncture is the intersection of so many decisions. What to pitch, how to position the fielders, where to make the play. And the answers to these questions depend on the situation's specifics and are sensitive to endless complication. Are there men on base? Who's batting and who's on base? Who's on the mound? How fresh is he? What's the situation on the bench? Who's on deck? And on and on. It takes not only experience, but also curiosity and patience to realize what's at stake at every juncture of the game. For one who can perceive all this, the game is not slow. In fact, it's way too fast. You've got to be quick to keep track of what's going on so that you don't get stuck making decisions too late. It takes time to follow and understand the game. And it takes time to play the game and to play the game well. Batters and base runners and fielders have a lot to think about, a lot to understand. It's interesting how players, in many respects, actually get better as they get older, as they reach you know, the end of their 20s. The game has evolved techniques of distributed decision-making. Managers signal catchers who guide pitchers. They relay messages to coaches who communicate with hitters and runners and fielders. It looks like they're all just standing around, scratching themselves. In fact, they're hard at work, deliberating, communicating, deciding, and delivering action in real time. Of course it's a slow sport. It's got to be slow, but not slow boring. Not for the players and not for the fans who care. Consider the showdown between pitcher and batter known as the at-bat. For each of them, this is it. It's his chance, an epic opportunity for self-actualization. The pitcher has, the risk, has to risk everything and dare the batter to swing at pitches he can't hit. With the eyes of the world and those of every player or person in the ballpark upon him, the batter, for his part, faces the puzzle of figuring out what the pitcher's going to do. Unless he knows in advance, he doesn't have a very good chance of hitting anything. The ball moves too fast. His problem is physical, but it's also intellectual and highly stressful. He, too, is in the spotlight. Why shouldn't he step out of the batter's box to refasten his batting gloves? He's doing everything he can to focus, to find a way to be present and in control in a difficult situation. A comparison with little leaguers will help, and nothing changed my experience of baseball more than working with kids in little league. Um, a little leaguer at bat, as I'm sure you all know, doesn't call timeout between every pitch. He has to be taught to do that. 
He has to talk, be taught, or she has to be taught to you stepping out of the box as a way of settling himself down and taking control of the battle, the bout, the dance he's caught up in with the pitcher. The pitcher, too, needs to find a way to let go of what has maybe just gone wrong and maintain focus on his current task, using his body to hurl the ball to a narrow little target. The pitcher needs to learn to breathe, to organize, to keep control of his pace of play. <clears throat> now, if you don't know what you're seeing, if you don't understand the tactical minutiae and straining every little thing these guys are doing, and if you don't appreciate the difficulty and stress they're under, well, then yeah, it looks like much. There's not much going on. Or maybe you just aren't really paying attention, multitasking as you may be with your smartphone. Boredom is the fruit of your disconnect, your disengagement. But speeding up the play is not a remedy for this kind of boredom that is born of disengagement and indifference. Um, a very interesting problem arises in the art world. If you go to museums these days, you'll notice that there's a tremendous effort made to make the work available to you. There's there's audio guides and there's wall texts. And then, I don't know if you've noticed, they're now basically moving the, the bookshop into the hearts of exhibitions so you can, you can spend money, which is something we're all very good at, you know, right away and, and, and get the sense that you're understanding because you're going to get a book that will explain it to you. Now, I think it's a very interesting and legitimate concern. If you're a museum person, you want to make the work visible to an audience that doesn't know how to stop, that doesn't know how to slow down, that doesn't know how to take a look, that doesn't know what questions are. <laughs> The problem baseball cases is actually not, not unlike that. Now, um, just a couple more things I want to mention before I open this up discussion. I've been talking about the way in which at the heart of baseball, is a reflective concern, a kind of adjudicative or, or forensic concern with or a, a taking of responsibility inside the game for, for understanding the game and for thinking about it, for writing it down, for figuring out what happened, where that really requires judgment. Now, as we know, there's another way of thinking about the game which is very influential. This is the quantitative or numerical, the analytic way of thinking the game, where statistics is the heart of the game. People say it's about statistics, fundamentally. And, and by the way, that's not a new thing. That's 150 years old. That's as old as baseball. Baseball has long been trying to use numbers to help tell its story and to help interpret the significance of actions taking place in the field. But if we're not careful, I think, the quantitative view of the game can distort these other values that I think, I would say, are really what give the game its beauty and its meaning. And this may be the most controversial thing I say to you this evening. Um, it's not just numbers versus interpretation, it's, it's the idea that you can define the game just in terms of what's happening at the material level. I mentioned in passing, I wanna, I wanna make the point again. What is a ball and a strike, really? What are balls and strikes? They're, they're, balls and strikes are among the most fundamental entities in the baseball universe. But what is a ball, what is a strike? You might say, well, it's a strike if it's 
That's why I'm adding mist, or if it falls in a certain space. But what is that space? What is the strike zone? I want to make the proposal that really, if you look at our practice as players of the game throughout all these decades, what the strike zone is, it's a zone of responsibility. The strike zone is the zone in which the batter is responsible. The batter's got to protect, the batter's got to own the strike zone. Um, a ball which isn't in the strike zone is, is not, is sort of, is on the picture. It's, it's his bat rather than the hitter's bat. And the idea that you might, as they're experimenting with already in the minor leagues, replace the umpire with a sort of tennis-style ball location, um, location device, would I think really mark the end of baseball. I think that would really be a travesty because it's, it's about that judgment. And players know this. Good hitters expand the strike zone. Good pitchers, rather, good, good pitchers um, expand the strike zone. Good hitters know ways of narrowing it. There's a dialogue going on between umpires and hitters. This is, this is something which can't be eliminated. I mentioned, the, I mentioned the concept of an earned run before, and I heard some chuckles in the room. Um, ERA is a very precise mathematical concept. We can, we can reason perfectly analytically accurately about ERA, but all that mathematics rests on top of this very squishy interpretive idea that earned run. When is the run earned? When isn't it earned? Um, you know, uh, there are, there are all, you know, should, should a run count as earned when it was a result of a stolen base? Well, was it the pitcher's fault that the base was stolen or not? Sometimes yes, maybe sometimes no. There are so many cases. And you know, this idea that we don't hold the pitcher responsible for anything that happens after an error that would have been the third out, well, that's reasonable. Why blame, why blame the pitcher for what happens after he would have been sitting in the dugout? On the other hand, if the pitcher then proceeds to walk three people and then give up a grand slam, in what universe is that not the pitcher's, the pitcher's fault? So there's, the point is, you can have the formula, but the, the concept on which the formula lies is soft and squishy. So we just need to understand that we can use numbers to summarize, to predict, to try to get a handle on, on habit, but we can't replace, and it's, I think, a pipe dream to think that we can replace the more human, squishy, uh, fragile, interpretive parts of the game. Outs, hits, run, uh, balls, strikes. So this is the fundamental level of reality in baseball, and we can't separate that from the human, I would say. By the way, when I criticize the use of umpires for um, ball and strike counting, and that really, when that starts, that's the day I stop watching professional baseball. But, um, but I, I love instant replay. I have no problem with instant replay. I think that's a totally different thing. Because instant replay isn't replacing the judgment of the man, of the, of the umpire. It's simply expanding the group of umpires that are involved in the argument. And we all get to participate in it. It gives, to me, every time you go to instant replay, it's a learning opportunity for everybody there to think about the principles that are at stake in making the call. Yes, sometimes it, it extends play unnecessarily, but it's interesting. I think it's, I think it's an interesting moment in the game. Um, there's, a, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a desire to reduce things to the physical when really they're mental. I overheard recently um, people discussing, when do you call a check swing strike? And they were debating, is it when the wrists crack or the arms move a certain distance? And, and uh, Ron Darling, who was the 
I listen to Mets games. Ron Garland used to pitch for the Mets. He was a star back in 86. He's now one of their, their announcers. He was talking to an umpire about it, and the umpire said, no, um, oh, what was the term? We, we call it check swing strike when the, when the batter offers it the ball, offers it a pitch. In other words, what's at stake is not the physics of the arm movements, but it's the intention. It's the psychological state of the batter that the umpire is trying to discern. Or here's a, another example where I think the kind of physical approach goes, has such unpleasant qualities. Um, you know, we're living in an era right now of sort of power pitchers, and, and, and there's a lot of celebration of the, the radar gun is the measure of the pitcher's, of the pitcher's genius. Um, contrary to the poem I shared with you before, where the pitcher is the one who's trying to hit the mark that you don't think he's trying to aim at, um, and where there's so much wild and, and um, new, uh, you know, um, um, false expectations and this communicative act, this complex communication going on between the pitcher and the hitter, where the pitcher makes the batter think that the ball is going to be here, but it's there, and the batter understands too late, again, to quote <coughs> the poem that I read. Um, so you can, if, if the kind of the, the standard story about pitching is the pitcher throws it faster than the hitter can hit, the hitter is really sort of fighting against his nervous system. But really, I think there's a psychological story there, which is much more interesting than that. Um, I'm, I'm going a little bit quickly now over some of these points, because I want to get to discussion. I'm going to mention just one last example, and then I'm going to call it quits and open up the floor. Um, this is the question of wins and losses as a statistic. One of the, one of the things that the quants, that the analytic folks, that the money ball people say is that we need new statistics get rid of some of this soft, squishy stuff from the way we analyze the game. And one of the least loved statistics in current baseball culture are wins and losses. So the win is, for the, I'm sure everybody knows, but the win is you, when, you, when you credit a pitcher with the team's win. And the argument against it is why should one credit a pitcher with something, or why should one evaluate the pitcher's performance on the basis of something which is out of his control? Because you can pitch no-hit baseball and lose the game if your team doesn't score any runs. And nowadays we see that even in the pitching awards, we're no longer giving much weight to wins and losses. The winner of the, the Cy Young Award last season, I think, won 10 games in the National League. Jacob DeGrom, I think he was 10-9, and nine, but he had a 1.71 ERA. So um, there's a kind of a, a recognition there that it's irrational to think that wins and losses is a good measure of a pitcher's performance. And this is, this, this is tied up with a whole revolution in the way we think about pitchers. We don't have starting pitchers anymore. We have openers and pitching by committee and, um, and, and um, really a new way of thinking about what the, what the role of the pitcher is. Well, I want to just for a moment defend the old way of thinking about a pitcher. And I can't think of any better way of doing it and imaginably to have us go back to Little League. I'm sure there's people in this room that have played Little League or have children who have played Little League. Um, you remember what it's like to watch an 11 or 12 year old pitcher on the mound when things aren't going well. Everybody in, this, everybody in the field is talking, there's, 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 
there's chanting, there's there's rah rah rah, there's team spirit, there's noise. Not the picture. <laughs> the picture is in a tunnel of anxious concentration. The picture may have tears on his or her cheeks. Um, the picture has the weight of the situation on his shoulders. Um, the picture really has a different relationship to that situation, to what's going on, than the rest of the team. Not that the picture is alone responsible. Obviously, that's not true. Pictures of members of a team, and the catcher's important, and the all fielders are important, and so on and so forth. But there's a special um, weight that the, that the pitcher is grappling with. Sometimes the pitcher gets lucky, and, and, and the team wins, even if he didn't do so well. Maybe he walked too many people, or gave up too many hits, or gave up too many runs. And sometimes the pitcher just closed the other team down. Either way, it doesn't seem at all misguided to recognize that the pitcher's the pitcher deserves a special kind of of acknowledgement in this in this story, and wins and losses is a reflection of that. So, when we try to use reason and rationality to purify the game of of some of what is really most important about the game, uh, I think I think we do run the risk of ruining the game. Um, and I think it's interesting, I'll just mention this as a closing thought. I think it's an interesting thing. You know, baseball, organized professional baseball was a sort of creature of the end of the 19th century. So was science. I mean, modern, you know, big science as we know it today, specialized science. You know, earlier you could have scientists who could at least aspire to understanding everything. But by the middle of the 19th century, Success in science was, the, was, was purchased at the price of specialization, real, intense, specialized knowledge. Scientists couldn't talk to each other any, anymore. And you not, only had, you not only had that, but you also had all these new sciences, social sciences, neuroscience, linguistics, psychoanalysis, economics, soci sociology. You had all these new experts telling us what we are and how we're supposed to live. A lot of, lot of voices telling us how we are and supposed to live. It's interesting to me and in baseball, you have the same kind of thing. You have, on the one hand, a kind of scientific school of thought, and then you have a more humanistic school of thought that's interested in not letting the game be swallowed up by the scientific modeling. Um, so I suggest that even this tension within baseball, this, this, this divide within the baseball community and the baseball culture, is actually part of, tied to some ways in which, in baseball, we're working on some pretty deep and interesting ideas. So um, with that, I thank you so much for your attention, and I look forward to hearing your responses. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so I think the protocol is you just go right to the microphone. a little bit more about why it's philosophical. Like, 
why do we need it? Why did it come about? How is it, is it part of being American? Is it part of the time? And maybe somewhat related, do you think any of this philosophical orientation applies to cricket? Applies <laughs> to what? Applies <laughs> to what? <laughs> um, yes. So to the, to the last question, I think it applies to cricket, which I'm not an expert on, but my, my cricket-loving friends tell me it's a much better game than baseball. Um, and there's also a scorekeeping practice inside, inside cricket. Um, and actually, I think it applies to almost everything. I don't think it's unique to baseball. Um, I think it applies to boxing, and I think it applies in, in some way to any sport. And I think it applies, as I, in some of the, some of the chapters in the book I argue, it applies to language, and it applies to law, and, and it, it's maybe a fact about culture, that culture is um, a concern for people in a culture. You don't just do things, you also reflect on it. In other words, you, philosophy. Um, philosophy starts with living, it doesn't start with classes. And I, but the thing that's, that's, I think, special about baseball, I'm not sure about cricket, but I think the thing that's special about baseball is the way in the score-making practice it makes these things so explicit and thematizes them so richly. And I think that's partly why there is such a, a writing culture around baseball. I did, I mentioned this in the book, I did a very unscientific survey on, on Google Scholar, or Google Books, rather, of, of books about baseball. And there were, there were orders of magnitude more books about baseball than books about, about football, European and American, during this, during, since 2000. So there's a lot of stuff written about baseball, even now, when baseball has, has lost its preeminence. Another aspect of your question, um, I've never liked the phrase, the American pastime. Um, I've never believed it. Um, it's always sounded to me like a very successful marketing slogan. <laughs> and like a good marketing slogan, it kind of convinces us to live according to it. And so we so much romance about baseball. Um, so I, I don't want to say that there's something especially American about it. But actually, my argument, if you follow it through, is that baseball is an especially legalistic game. It's, a, it's an especially juridical game. So it is, if you like, I think, the game of a constitutional democracy. <laughs> it is the kind of game that we should be playing. Also, as I said, there was a beautiful book by, um, I forget his first name, Schwartz, called The Numbers Game, that was a history of, of debates about statistics in baseball. And as I mentioned in passing during my talk, um, the debates about the statistics, really, they go back to the 1850s. Um, so this is not new, you know. Moneyball is not new. I mean, the particular theory behind the new Moneyball, the new analytics is different. But the idea that we need to have these controversies about statistics, and also that there's a battle between a, a mathematical and a non-mathematical approach to the game, that, I think, is an American problem. That is an American problem. We see it, and I don't this gets into train I'm not very confident speaking about, but you know, there are lots of people telling you, 
exactly how long it's okay for you to let your kids look at a video game, or exactly how long you should breastfeed for, or exactly how long your children can sleep in your bed and get sleeping time. We have, we have experts up the wazoo telling us how to live. And I think it's a little bit analogous to people thinking that numbers decide whether or not the manager should trust his, his closer, even though he's given up a hit in the ninth inning. There are some decisions that we need to make based on our relationships. Um, and the expert, the numbers simply don't solve that problem for us. So I think that there is a sense in which there's a, there is a, a way in which we're working out culturally relevant issues in baseball. Yeah. I have a question that your title, Infinite Baseball, begs the question, will the game ever end? <laughs> and, uh, it seems to me that baseball is unique in sports in that time does not determine when the game ends. Right. The game determined the time the game takes to play. And that's different than most professional sports, unless I'm mistaken. Just some thoughts about that. I think you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know if a game could, could go on indefinitely. Um, there's, no, there's no rule that says, whoever's ahead at this point, we're gonna call the game, we're gonna call the game. Um, and uh, it's interesting, actually, that gets fuzzy with youth baseball. So in youth baseball, sometimes they end, depending on the league, sometimes the game's over at seven innings, sometimes the game's over when there's mercy rules, you know, there's, there are other humane concerns that sometimes force us to bring a game to its conclusion. Um, but this, this really goes to this issue of, of timing and what our relationship is to time. And in a way, what I want to say to Bud Selig and Manfred and this, all these people who are trying to speed up the game is actually, it is such a privilege to be able to be bored at the ballpark or to be bored in the game because it's like, that's really the boredom. It is the same kind of boredom that we know with art and science. It's the boredom of, of um, a problem unfolding. So I don't have anything more particular to say about that, but I think, I think it's a very, very important point. And I really, I think they should just leave time alone. I think pitch clocks and um, all these things that they're introducing, I don't think they really get at the essential. You, you know, so there's, there's an interesting, interesting question. Why is it that they feel the need to shorten the game? What is it about us now that makes it seem so difficult to pay attention for a game. But is it part of the beauty that the game is long enough that you can leave it and come back? You can stop paying attention. That's, that's also a good thing. Um, I, love, I love doing something else with the game. I love flying asleep to the game. That's actually one of my, one of my great pleasures. Um, um, the game serves an important function, <laughs> which is not just, and, and then when you, when you see the, uh, it is tricky, like when you watch the highlight reel on the news, or when you watch, you know, on, on MLB.com, you can watch sort of quick summaries of every game. And it's, it's usually they show you the home runs, and they show you a few strikeouts. They don't show you the beautifully turned double play, and they don't show you, oh, and, and now they're getting rid of the intentional walk, we have to, you know, we have to throw the balls. All this kind of anxiety, it bespeaks an anxiety about slowing down and allowing for the possibility of being bored. So I'm speaking now not to the question of the actual infinity of the game, but to the, the whole issue of timing inside the game. It's, 
it, it definitely bears more, more thought. And I bet the people in baseball must be thinking about it hard. Yeah. Well, first of all, I can discuss baseball with you for days. I've been a fan for a long, long time. But my question is, I watch the games most of the time that are recorded, not you know, as they're happening. Um, and I hate to hear the score before the game. Yeah. My wife doesn't mind, but she wasn't a baseball fan, so she met me and she has learned the game quite well by now. And uh, she doesn't mind hearing the score, but for me, if I know who's going to win or lose, it takes all the anticipation and the excitement about, is he going to get hit? Is he going to throw a strike? That all goes away if you know what, what happens at the end. And, and I think that's a very important way to see my involvement with baseball, is that it's not about what time the game happens or how long it takes. It's about being involved in the whole thing. I mean, as you talked about, it's the purpose. And uh, I just want to know what your thoughts are about the difference between knowing the score and not knowing the score. That's great. That's a great comment. Um, I think my own personal view, not speaking as a philosopher, but speaking as a fan, I think my own personal view is I like not to know the score when my team is going to win. <laughs> if I know the score, I don't want to watch it. Which is a funny thing. I don't want to, I don't want to experience the ordeal of watching yet another crushing defeat, like watching the bullpen blow another lead or something like that. It makes me feel sad. I feel sad. Like it actually, it actually affects my mood. I, I, I think it might have even played a role in my divorce. <laughs> I, I mean, not, not, not the losing, but just the obsession with baseball one way or the other. My, my, my ex-wife did once describe herself as a baseball widow. I hope she's not going to listen to this. Um, um, it makes me seem like a hard-hearted hard person. I don't mean that. But actually, I, it does really affect you. It's, um, but what's interesting is it's not just the final score. Like, I, I, I have a special love for, for, for ace pitching. I love, I love the way in which the, um, the fate of a team can be on the shoulders of a pitcher and you know, every five or six days it's their turn to pitch and there's so much expectation that they're gonna, they're gonna stop the other team, they're gonna stop the losing, and they're gonna actualize it. There's such great disappointment, but they don't. Um, so the reason I'm mentioning that is if a pitcher does well, a pitcher that I admire or follow does well, I still get great comfort, even if the team loses, because of, say, a mishap in the, by the relief, relief pitching. Um, similarly, because my team, the Mets, really are, are out of it now and, and are playing well below 500 baseball, um, what I find myself paying attention to is the individual exploits of the individual players. And there are some really good individual players. And so I'm often, what I'm interested in is how they did. And I wouldn't really want to know how they did until the game was over. So I don't really care at that point. Winning and losing is no longer important, but did Peter Alonso get a hit, or did Jeff McNeil get a hit? That's the kind of thing I care about. Care about. So, but you're raising a very good question, I don't know the answer. Why does this matter? Why does it matter? Why would the game be less fun to watch if you know the outcome? And I agree with you that, as a general rule, it is. That suggests that part of it is a true identification with the struggle of winning, I guess, so that we're in it. We're not, we're not just interested in what happened, 
were interested in winning with the team or, or, or playing with the team. And so that must be what it has to do with. Because, you know, great works of art, we don't mind watching again and again. Like, you can see a Shakespeare play many times over. The fact that you know what happens at the end doesn't ruin it. But it does with, with the sports game. It, it's very interesting. We don't, we're even like a great perfect game, like, you know, a Sandy Kopeck's perfect game. We don't really want to watch all of it, all nine innings. Again, we know what happened. And that's, that's the idea of it is, is spices. Um, so this is, I'm sorry, I don't mean to continue too long with this question, but maybe this has to do with, I talked about before how when you keep score of a game, you're kind of writing history. Maybe part of what we're really concerned with is really having the, is, is sharing the responsibility of understanding what's happening. And if, if, it's, if it's after the fact, we feel we can't do that. I also often watch games on time delay because I watch East Coast games and I can't, I can't, I'm at work when they're, when they're happening. I watch them when I get home and fall asleep. Um, but um, but uh, I am very annoyed if, if I find out the score. So I watch the games on MLB TV, and they have a setting that hides the scores. But it always is turning itself on. So sometimes I'll go, oh, I'm watch the game, and I'll turn on the TV, and there's the score. <laughs> it's very frustrating. So the long answer. I forget which side is in. That's OK. We're going to have time for these last four. Okay. I'm, I'm you uh, you talked a, a little bit about baseball as a legalistic. You made, you made an analogy that it's a legalistic sport, and I'm just curious. Also, I mean, this is a facet of that, but the etiquette of baseball seems to be shifting over the last I don't know, maybe five, ten years. To should a should a batter flip a bat if he hits a home run? Should a pitcher throw at a batter's head if he's hit two home runs in the game? All all those kinds of things. I'm just curious if you had any thoughts about how that's changing. And, whether that's for the good or the ill of the game. Yeah, great questions. Um, I just want to acknowledge the, the, the interest of the question. It's changing in so many ways, both at the level of etiquette, but there are also rules that are sort of in the vicinity. Like, one of the things I always loved about baseball was the neighborhood rule. <laughs> yeah. You know, the neighborhood rule is where the, 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 the shortstop has played the grounder and touches second, throws to first, there's a double play. But if his foot misses second base, it doesn't really matter because he could have touched second base if he'd been a bit more careful. It's, we recognize that he was in the neighborhood. He, 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 deserves, he deserves credit. But of course, the age of instant replay, you don't have that anymore because now you can challenge everything. And so the neighborhood rule is gone. And that feels to me a loss because, because what they're really recognizing is even if the batter, even if he didn't touch second base, the runner deserved to be out. <laughs> that's, that's the kind of part of it that I, that I like. Or, um, or, and then the whole thing about um, the catcher's blocking home plate or hard slides. Now, I would never want to say I'm in favor of you know, career-ending injuries in these collisions, but um, I'm not sure that those changes in the rules make our, our that beneficial for the game. I'm not sure about that. But these are related to etiquette, like as you mentioned, the throwing the balls at, at the batter's heads. Um, I definitely don't think pitchers should throw balls at batter's heads, but you know, the shoulders. I don't know. I mean, one of the differences is uh, is the culture is changing, and the game is internationalizing. There's a lot, a lot of people from 
from around the world in different ages. I mean, I'm 54 years old, and when I consider that these guys, are, you know, there's, there's you know, 19 and 20 year olds in the game, and 19 and 20 year olds from, from different countries, from, from Asia, from South America, Central America, um, it's maybe not surprising that these etiquette things change. Um, I guess it's, I guess, I'm interested in seeing the way it evolves. I'd like to see the way it evolves apart from the way, the way it's regulated from the top down, um, like the bat, the bat flipping thing. I, I guess I don't really see what all the fuss is about bat flipping. Um, slow jogging the bases, I can, I can see how that could be a bit provocative. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, I think a lot of that is a bit of a storm in a, in a teacup, some, some, some of that stuff. One of the things I've always uh, found important in philosophy is how to find meaning and purpose in a world that's basically absurd and futile. Can you relate that to the fan who is sticking with the team year after year despite, <laughs> despite what is our purpose? Yeah. next year. <laughs> That's such a good question. And then there's another whole shade to the question. Um, the other day I heard an announcer complaining about grown men who will run to catch foul balls and like block a kid from catching him. You know, like, you know, this brawny sort of 50-year-old robbing the kid his opportunity to catch the foul ball. But I realized the whole basis of the game is the fact that while that 50-year-old man is at the ballpark, he's just a kid. In his, in his mind, he is reliving that excitement. Um, you know, I, I really went to baseball games when I was a kid. It was, it was too expensive and I had no grown up to take me. But I took my kids to baseball games, and I still do. Um, and nowadays, maybe it was always, always true, but if you get there early, you can go down to the field, and the millionaires will sign your autographs, and I mean, they'll actually, they'll, they'll, and I have to, I have to really consciously brace myself from, from, from just getting excited, excited at the proximity of, you know, a guy who's going to be back in the minors next month anyway, and it's not, it's, it's, it's amazing, the psychology of it, and it's the same psychology that lets me just, Oh, you want to buy a ten dollar pack of baseball cards at the ballpark? Sure, here's my credit card. You know, it's the same. It's the thing which makes it all work. Is this kind of, is this kind of hysterical energy that's going on there? Um, so, what's it all about fundamentally? Um, I'm going to be kind of sentimental about it, but I think, I think there's, it has something to do with love. Because when I think back to, I grew up in New York City. And there wasn't Little League in my life. If it existed in the city, I didn't know about it. And like, I didn't have a grown-up take me to it. But what I discovered in California, Little League is a big deal. And, and lots of parents work really, really hard. They're out there cleaning fields and, and spending money and driving kids around. I mean, it's over the top, actually. Now, you travel ball and stuff, it's kind of excessive. But it's also a kind of remarkable civic achievement people coming together as a community and making this thing, it kind of reminds me of what a church can be or should be or a synagogue. You know, it's really a kind of, it's a community-based commitment to this incredibly difficult game. And um, so when I see, when I, when I see, I'm kind of mentioning you in a sort of associative way, but when I see a, um, 
manager go out to talk to his pitcher, or a pitching coach go out to talk to his pitcher in the major of the game, I also see the little league coach going out and resting his hand on the five foot, four foot tall pitcher. Yeah. You know, you've got the six foot man bending down and trying to give, give him counsel. Um, and then you see major league players make little league mistakes, trying to tag the runner instead of throwing to the. And there's all sorts of things that happen in the game. There's this connection, this continuity between the passion and community lovingness of, of youth baseball and the, and the professional game that is important. The last part of it, or last example is, um, a few years ago when, when the Mets were playing uh, interleague baseball in uh, Oakland, actually, um, at the end of the game, we walked down to the, to the Mets dugout. We were sitting up high, but we walked down. Just as David Wright was coming off the field, then the Mets superstar third baseman, and he, as he was entering the dugout, took off his wristbands and his batting gloves and threw them at us. Um, so that I was with three kids and we all got sweaty wristbands and bandanas. And, and my first, my, my thought was really, God be praised. David, David Wright be praised. Let us sing his praises. Let us, let us get down on our knees and weep for joy. This is my view. Actually, in a more cynical moment occurred to me, you know, maybe this is part of his marketing. It was all, it was all Nike stuff. <laughs> and, and maybe actually, or maybe it's public relations. He had his own public relations czar that told him, what you do is you give your stuff and then this builds your brand. Who knows what, what was really going on? But there was definitely something, something meaningful about that. So why are we fans of these, these teams? I mean, when the, there's constant changeover and when we see, I know this is a big issue here, and, Seattle, which is supposedly in a sort of makeover moment, um, where you know they just get rid of beloved players left and right without any regard for the for the community. Um, maybe it says something bad about us that we stay loyal to our teams, but we do. Well, I, I, on that note, I moved up to Bellingham a couple of years ago. Summer collegiate leagues, they are fabulous. <laughs> Uh, we have one up in Bellingham that is really fun to watch. Uh, you mentioned that uh, you like replay, and, and I do too. I, and I don't care if it lasts three minutes because they slow it down so much. Did he tag the bag first or did the first baseman tag? And they've got slow motion that boggles your mind. But at the same time, uh, I, I heard you say you didn't like the idea of maybe computerized umpires behind the plate calling balls and strikes. But they're showing us on TV now, you know, they've got the little box there and radar and GPS. And Jesus, these umpires aren't calling strikes. Uh, what do you feel about that then, as opposed to the other kinds of, say, replay and stuff? Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. And I completely, as, as, you, as you know, I completely agree with you about the instant replay. And yeah, those, those, those calls at first base where, um, where, you know, for example, in the World Series a few years back, uh, there was a very controversial call at first base. It was the Giants, Giants against the Royals, I think. And uh, the runner going from home had slid in head first at first base. 
And you know why? So we spent a lot of time thinking about why did he do that? Why would he? Why did he slow himself down by diving head first? And that was an opportunity we had thanks to the instant replay. Um, all I can do is is try to persuade you. I can't. I can't. I can't prove my point. But when I was when I was um, I was directly behind the the, the batter's box at a little league game. And there was a very close slap bang play at the play, really, really close to the play. And it was boom, boom. And the umpire did this, just boom. And it was so fast that I couldn't even really know what I saw. And if I tried to think about what I saw, I couldn't really say. And I was struck by how different my experience of what had happened was from my experience of the film, from my experience of the movie, from my experience of the picture. This was not a movie. This was not a film. This was life, and the umpire was in it. He was part of it. He didn't have the luxury of watching TV. He was, he was a player too. And his skill that allowed him to go to me, that was not bogus authority. That was commitment, that was involvement, and the game, that's part of the game for me. And also with balls and strikes. Also, I like, there's this, there's this whole other thing that happens with balls and strikes. But when an umpire makes a bad call, he gives you the back on the next pitch, often. Not, not always, but there's a whole dialogue that goes on, you know. You know, I called it, or, or um, there's, there's, there's things that happen. And it, it, what, what matters to me less is where the ball is than whether everybody's sort of on the same page about understanding. Here's the question. Was it too close to take? Was it too close to take? It was too close to take. Why did you take it? Don't blame the umpire for missing or making a call. It was too close to take. And that matters. I think that's where the game lives in those judgments. So, so I just read a couple of days ago, I hadn't heard about this, but I just read a couple of days ago, I think I saw it on Twitter, that is in the Atlantic League, which is, I think, a, a double-A league, I think. Actually, I'm not sure. They're, they're, they're testing the system where the umpires have an iPhone in their back pocket and, and, and an eye, one of those wireless earpieces in their ears. And they're, they're getting a call from a, from a machine. And they can either override it or go with it. So they have the authority. So that, yeah, it's, a, it's a whole new skill. And oh, and by the way, just one last thing about replay. One last thing about replay. You talked about the slow motion. What, I, what I'm amazed by is how often you see the slow motion replay from, from four different angles and you still can't tell yeah, how it's going. Right. Right. <laughs> so, I'm gonna, we should probably be done, but I wanted to talk, ask this question for a bit, so I'm gonna assert some kind of executive director of whatever prerogative. Um, my daughter, who's here with me tonight, uh, uh, gave me probably the greatest birthday present of my life a couple years ago. Um, uh, as she was becoming a baseball fan and sort of being brought into the game by me, the way you've alluded a few times to so me, fathers. Have, at any rate, she, one of the things she learned from me, point blank, and she put it on a shirt for me, <laughs> it, the words are, Edgar should be in the hall. <laughs> she, she gave me this shirt two years ago, long before it was a reality. Um, um, but, but in the moment where she presented this to me as such a declarative statement, like on the front of a shirt, it went from being an argument that I tried to make with numbers and with discussing, um, you know, well, should a DH, you know, what it, well, should DH be allowed in the hall? Should, you know, 
is that only half of a player, all the things, I, in sort of putting it into baseball language, by her sort of reflecting it back to me in such simple language, I realized that really what I was trying to argue for was a certain kind of virtue that I have assigned to him as a player. Like, and I think a lot of us in Seattle, I don't know, I want to speak for all of you, but for me, he always, uh, among even all the great players we've had, he's always reflected a certain kind of, um, uh, I don't know, forthright and virtuous approach to the game. So after all of that, my question is, what's the, um, what are the dangers and pitfalls uh, that can arise from uh, those moments where we, uh, where we assign and ascribe so much um, I don't know, uh, virtuous or moral um, uh, uh, weight to what is ultimately at the end of the day just a person playing the game the way they play the game. What, like, am I, what am I risking um, by investing so much in his being an intrinsically good person who should be in the hall because there's something that is intrinsically good about him? Does that form into a question? <laughs> that's what I felt like when I saw it in the shirt. <laughs> That's, yeah, it's, it's, very, it's very profound, um, and it kind of touches on, on themes that we've already touched on about um, you know, why be a fan and what is this. There isn't really another term for what you're describing than, than love. You know, the way when you love someone, you see their virtues, or you see them as having virtues maybe they don't have. Um, and love is not a bad thing. <laughs> you know, I think we need more love rather than, than less. Um, and I think Edgar does deserve to be in the hall. Um, but but um, the, uh, the, I think it's good to have the conversation and to question our biases and to question our fairness. And to, I mean, the Hall of Fame is a funny institution. It's, when you think of you know, this history of this, you know, the racist exclusion of players and, and I mean, the, the the ugly history of, 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 of baseball as our social life has been reflected in it. Um, because the, the question racism is, is the biggest the biggest thing. You know, something I, this, I'm digressing, and I know you want us to stop too, but um, when I was reading these books that were recently published about the 1969 Mets, I was not really, I was too young to follow baseball at that time. Um, I was sh shocked to learn that um, that the Mets team was was very segregated inside the team. There were there were four African American players who were both from the deep, all from the deep south on the team, and by coincidence they all bumped together on road on road trips, and by coincidence their lockers were all together in the locker room. I mean and that was something I was never aware of. Never never had that thought. And there there are other interesting things that happened that if you look back on you can see. So there's a lot of room for love and a lot of room for criticism too uh, in baseball. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually left a little bit speechless by the, the scale of your question. Yeah. No, 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 it's a, it's a good question. And with that, I thank you, Dr. Noe.